You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. We've talked uh, with you before about um, if it's your first mealtime at the Hunt household, and we are slowly working through the world's population. We're halfway through, actually. But there are a series of questions that you'll often, often get asked. If money and morals were no problem, what car would you drive? And, and it gets from, from sort of the superficial down to some of the more serious questions. And one we love to ask is, if you could take, a, take a, an event in the Bible, a, a biblical event, and you could actually watch it on video um, from every angle, vivid and colourful like, like never before, what, what would that event be? And we've got lots of different, different answers. Uh, crossing the Red Sea is a, is a popular one. Um, the um, uh, resurrection appearances are other popular ones. But Bron was asking a friend of hers, a, a missionary with OM in the US, that we've had a long-standing relationship with. And and her name is Jo Harmon. And in a conversation, Bron was asking her on one occasion, what would it be? And, and her answer was one we have never heard before. It was this. In, in Luke chapter 22, verse 62, there is a, a record of, of Peter in his three denials of Jesus. And throughout the Gospels, we, we get a full picture of what this looked, looked like. There in the courtyard, a, a fire going. And, on, and only Luke records this. On the third denial, Luke records that Jesus looked straight at him. And Peter had just denied his Savior for the third time. And Jesus looked straight at him. And suddenly Peter remembered that Jesus had predicted that he would deny him three times and then the cock would crow as it did. And she said, I would like to see the look in Jesus' eyes at that moment. I would like to see the look on Jesus' face. You see, for Peter the Zealot, this was a test of his zeal. This was a test of his affections. And we're in a, having a little bit of a, a look at um, the uh, little series, Laying Hold of God's Promises. And whenever we seek to lay hold of God's promises, our zeal or our affections for him, will inevitably be tested. Later on in John chapter 21, we have this beautiful scene of Peter and Jesus walking along the beach. And the question that Jesus asks repeatedly is, do you love me? Do you love me? Whenever we seek to lay hold of God's promises, our affections for him will be tested. Well, let's have a let's have a look once more at at the story unfolding for us in in Joshua here. Um, let me read to you Joshua chapter one verses verses ten. I'm going to read through to verse eighteen. Joshua chapter one, from verse ten through to eighteen. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people go through the camp and. Tell the people, get your provisions ready. 
Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. After he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you, east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. And then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go, just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, is to be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, they're ready. They're ready to cross the Jordan, part two of the Exodus. They've had that 40 years of wilderness experience, and now they're ready. And Joshua orders them to go through the camp and get your provisions ready. It must have been a couple of million people. It must have been a huge exercise to get them ready for this occasion. Get your provisions ready. But then he moves through the crowds towards the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. You see, as they approached the Jordan River, this, this land just east of it, there was a special request by these tribes, could they settle there? And Moses gives them permission to do so. Only they must first cross the Jordan with everybody else and help the rest of the tribes settle the land west of the Jordan. Then they could, they could go back. And so Joshua, moving through the crowds, finds these particular tribes. He calls the elders together and he has this conversation with them because now is a test of their obedience. You know what Moses has said, but before we cross over, your women and your children and your livestock, they're going to stay here. But he wants to remind them of the promise, the covenant that they made. And he wants to remind them of the importance of obedience in this matter, that they must cross over with them and fulfill their pledge. And so he tells them, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. He will give you rest in this land, but first you must cross over with us. It's a very, very important reminder to obey. Do you remember last week there were essentially two aspects to the passage that we looked at? Joshua was commanded to be strong and courageous and then to obey the very letter of the law. Two things, be strong and courageous and obey your God, for it will go well with you. And so here is this whole matter of obedience coming up again, not only for the nation of Israel, but this matter of obedience is coming up again, particularly for these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so there they are readying themselves, and Joshua reminds them of this. And then an extraordinary reply. 
in verse 16. They answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Well, that must have, that must have brought a smile to Joshua's face. They're with us. They're going to be obedient. And then they go further. Actually, this is quite surprising. Look at verse 18. In fact, and they're talking about managing the people, the men within their own tribes. And this, this has got to have been tempting. I mean, the east side of the Jordan, like the west side of the Jordan, this was, this was wild country. And to leave your family there and your livestock and so forth, it's going to be a step of faith. To trust that God will look after them as you go and help the rest of the nation. To take the land on the west side of the Jordan is a huge step of faith. But so committed to obeying God and his servant Moses on this matter, they say, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you command them, well, that person is to be put to death. So be strong and courageous. Wow. You see, their pledge to obey is really a, a pledge of loyalty. But why so strong? What's going on here? What is, what is this really about? Well, we have a hint of it, actually, back in... Deuteronomy. Let me just read you a few passages. Moses is talking to the people and giving them final instructions, and he says these things. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. Return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen to these words and just, just see, do they ring a bell? Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Verse 8, you will again obey the Lord and follow his commands I am giving you today. The Lord will again delight you, sorry, delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book, of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses is talking about the heart of a nation. He's making sure this is a little checklist before they cross the Jordan. Is your heart in a good space with God? This is a, a test of their affection. And if it is, then you will obey the Lord's commandments. Uh, he goes on and he says, and listen, by the way, these commandments aren't impossible. Uh, verse 11, now what I'm commanding you to do today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It is not as if it was up in the heavens. No, verse 14, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you may obey it. Beautiful, beautiful passage and a beautiful reminder. What's going on here? What is it that ultimately the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are being asked to do? This is a test of their heart. This is a test of their affections. Is God first? It's about the heart. It's always about the heart. God wants our heart. He wants our affections. 
And whenever we seek to lay hold of God's promises, our affections for him will be tested. And the test is this, do you want me more than you want what I have promised you? When we seek the the answers of God and the activity of God, do we seek God more than what he can do for us? That is always the test. How much do we want not what he can do for us? How much do we want him? That's the test. And that's what the test is here. Do we want God more than the answer to our crisis? Do we want God more than all of the wonderful promises that he has made to us? Do we want God? Does he have our heart? Is he the center of our affections? And it's interesting. This is what the first Joshua demanded of the people of Israel. And the second Joshua, Jesus, in the New Testament, demands exactly the same. I mentioned last week, and I need to apologize here, John chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. I, I quickly mentioned these verses, and, and I thought I was looking at, at verse 21, and that the T and the today's new international version had lost the sense of enfanizo, which is um, to that, that whole sense of God revealing himself, making, making himself manifest. But in actual fact, I was looking at verse, verse 23, and so I incorrectly, incorrectly said that um, other translations say manifest. Well, that, was, yeah, that actually is true of verse, verse 23. But that actually led me to, to pursue this. We're going to have a look, at it, a look at it this morning. The second Joshua demands the same in terms of obedience. Um, look, at, look at these verses. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, well, he is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love them and show myself to them. That's, that's that word, or manifest myself to them. I will reveal myself to them. Um, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, oh, But Lord, you, you intend to show yourself to us, but not the world. Now, this was perplexing because the disciples wanted Jesus to kind of, you know, uh, begin his, his kingdom rule. And so you've got to show yourself to everybody, right? But no, Jesus is emphatic here. No, this is not how it works, Judas. That's not, that's not the deal here. He replies, no, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Twice, the link is made between obedience to Jesus and loving Jesus. But they come with two different promises. On the, on the first hand, in verse 21, if you love me, you'll obey my teaching and I will reveal myself to you. And then in verse 23, if you love me, you obey my teaching. I will be present with you. I will come and abide with you. Um, if you want to have a look at this later, you can, you can look at our um, website and go to the blog. This, this week's blog is, is actually How to Love God, um, part one. And that's today, this Thursday or so. Part two will, will come out and How to Love God, part Part two, but let me let me just read two to try and get our heads around this link between obedience and love because we don't normally make that link, do we? Obedience and love, what have they got to do with each other? Yet, according to God, obedience is a requirement of love. 
Um, how does this work? All right, let's have a look. Why does Jesus say this? Well, when we speak of God's love for us and our love for God, we're not talking about love or not talking about love among equals. Frankly, we cannot love God in the same manner that he loves us. And it would be improper for God to love us as we love him. True, there are similarities. For instance, both loves are focused on the other, have their best intentions at heart, and involves sacrifice or the giving of oneself. However, he is our Lord and we are his servants. Our sacrifice is simply what he deserves, whereas his sacrifice is quite undeserved. What we are looking at here is, is really a challenge to the whole notion of love as we understand it. Um, at EBC here, we, we have a lot of weddings. And one of my challenges is when I'm taking a wedding um, is, to, is to create a, a whole different homily, the little message to the, to the bride and groom, charge to the, to the bride and groom, as they sometimes call it, um, but to, to develop that message around the theme of love. And so many of you have heard the, the different versions of this, but, but I do love, in terms of just a, a definition of love, I love Philippians chapter 2-4, where our attitude is to be the same as Christ Jesus. But essentially, where we are not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of another. It's a great little definition of love. It's not about what you want. It's about what somebody else wants or needs. William Barclay, um, who I wouldn't suggest you, you run with all of his theology, but when he has made a significant contribution to our understanding of how the Greek was used back in those days. But he comments that, that the, the Greek word agape for love was a word without definition. Nobody knew how to use it. It was really a word awaiting definition. And into that steps John, the Apostle John and, well, other, other writers of those days, and they inject it with meaning. Essentially, they, they describe it at this, as this undeserved benevolence. And that's the way that the Christian teachers use the word agape. Brother and I, some time back, we were walking through the, through the city and um, uh, up on the, I think it was the uh, Trade Hall Council wall, there was this big rainbow banner up there with love wins. And of course, it's a slogan that we, we hear a lot about today. And it's one which I fundamentally agree with, love does win. The question is... How does love win? And when we, when we talk about love, are we talking about the same sort of love? I was thinking about Paul as we're walking along, just pondering this. Paul in Corinth, he loved to take a slogan and then turn it around. Uh, he took the slogan that the Corinthians loved, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. That was a slogan they loved. Why did they love it? Don't worry. Anyway, Paul turns it around and, and he basically says, the body for the Lord, the Lord for the body, and just as God raised up the Lord, he will also raise up your body. Paul loved to take a slogan in those days, twist it around and, and inject it with meaning. And I thought, gee, if the Apostle Paul was, was walking down the street, when he saw this slogan, love wins, what, what would his little 
you know, sort of twist be on that. And immediately this, this came to mind, 2 John 1.6 or 2 John 6. And it's, it's quite this, love wins and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. 2 John verse 6, it's only one chapter, 2 John 6, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. Years ago, um, I worked um, with Victoria Police and city traffic, loved city traffic, a lot of foot patrol, but I remember distinctly the day I was introduced to 12 Point, the busiest intersection in Melbourne at the time. Um, now it's all changed, but, but Swanston uh, and Flinders Street, outside the Flinders Street station. And, and uh, back in those days, you know, um, it, was, it was trams going north, south, east, west, and, and, and no hook turns at that intersection. It was just, it was just crazy. It took, took two police, well-trained police, to control the intersection. And I recall watching it with a sergeant on one occasion because he was about to send us out to do it. And he's telling us how it all works and the different signals you've got to look for and where to stand so you don't get hit by the tram. There were only two places in the whole intersection that you could stand where you weren't going to be taken down by a car or a tram. And they, they were about the size of a Frisbee dish, you know. So you had to stand where the Frisbee was or um, it, was, it just got embarrassing. And, uh, and so, so we're watching the intersection. It is saying, now, when that, you, you know, nobody else sees this, but when you see that light go on over there, that means that is happening. And, and you know, you don't even have to look what's happening. You know that the light is changing and so forth. So there's all these little tricks. And so finally it was our turn, and, and we went out there. And, and I tell you, it was, it, was, it was something to control. It was incredible. And uh, I remember the first time, to this day, I remember the first time standing on my frisbee dish, you know, to this watching a tram come, you know, past me, sort of sucking, sucking in my stomach a little bit, and it just passed within inches. And um, and in this spot, you could actually have trams pass either side of you, but you just don't breathe out. And uh, it was an incredible intersection. The only way that it worked, to be quite honest, was by enforcing the law. There's another intersection, and a, a number of you families are familiar with it down in Warrandyte, and it's a T intersection. I think it's, it's the road that goes from Warrandyte to Kangaroo Ground and the road that goes from Warrandyte to Research. And yes, you're all familiar with it. <laughs> now, if you happen to be heading from Research, as, as we did for many years taking kids to school, uh, through Warrandyte, you come to the T intersection and it's just jammed. You've been, you've been queued up for some time and you wonder how are any of these cars getting through. It's quite amazing, actually. There are no traffic lights and there are no policemen there. But there are two rows of cars and basically, even though those cars coming from Kangaroo Ground into Warrandyte do not have to give way to those cars coming from research, they do. There is this, this lovely little, it's a custom. That's the best way to describe it. It's a custom. That's all it is. But they give way, one car at a time, and then off you go. And, and there is this understanding amongst, well, not only just the locals, but it seems everybody that uses that intersection to just yield to one another and just give everybody else a turn. 
That's fantastic. And for somebody who used to police 12 point, which you had to enforce the law, to see that intersection in Warren died, I think I love it. I love the way that everybody gets looked after this mutual yielding. Now, that word yield describes the word submission, how we submit to one another, and is a beautiful concept of, of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. It is a yielding to God. It is not looking to your own interests or your own wants. It is saying, what does God want most? What would bring the greatest joy to God? What would put a smile on God's face? What is it that would bless God's heart and be a gift to him? The answer is our obedience, to yield yourself to God. Because that represents submission. There's no greater love than to obey. And when we obey, God shows up. This is what the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh understood. In fact, look at there in verse 17. So whatever you've commanded, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Uh, verse 18 was, and anyone who doesn't, we'll take them out. Verse 17 is, just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Why did they say that? Why did they say that? Well, by obeying Joshua, they were obeying God, and they knew that obedience to God would result in his presence. The only hope there was for the nation of Israel as they entered this land was if you obey God, he will be present with you. Now, he's omnipresent. He's always around. But obedience is the prerequisite. For God showing up. When they obeyed God, and by obeying Joshua, his servant, they were obeying God. When they obeyed Joshua, thus God, they knew that God would show up. His presence would be with them. When we obey, God shows up. It's an incredible thing. And, and, we, and we see it. Um, in, in this verse. Have a, have a look at this for a moment. So you'll see that the, the words um, um, affection and devotion, obedience, revelation and experience, A-D-O-R-E, create the word adore. Okay, so here's a little, here's love described to us in John chapter 14, verses 20, 21 and verses 23. Um, the first thing that we see is affection, to desire. Then we're going to see devotion, to commit Obedience to submit, revelation to disclose, experience to abide with. The first three, affection, devotion, obedience, is, is our response to God. Revelation and experience is our, God's response to us. This is kind of how it unfolds here. Um, essentially, Jesus says, now, 
for everyone who claims to have affection for me. That word affection, um, Jonathan Edwards used to use it many, many years ago. It's kind of an old word. But when Jonathan Edwards was talking about a love for God or having a heart for God, he would talk about your inner affections. And so, essentially, Jesus says, you know, you, you say you love me. Well, well, everyone who loves me, everyone who says they desire me, they have affection for me, that person should demonstrate it through devotion, i.e. to commit to me, to accept my commandments, to say, I believe it's true. But then more, obey them, to submit, to, to actually accept my commandments and obey them. And then, for that person, who truly has affection for me, who, who shows it in their devotion and shows it in their obedience to me, for that person, I will reveal myself to them. I will disclose myself. I will love them and reveal myself to them. In fact, the Father also will love them, and we will come and make our home with them. That's God showing up. That's the presence of God. It's interesting. You can, you can have presence Sorry, you cannot have presence without revelation. Sorry, let me say that again. You can have presence without revelation, but you can't have revelation without presence. You can have presence without revelation, but something's hidden, right? It's present, but it's not revealed. You just can't see it. It's hidden. But you can't have revelation without presence. You can't reveal something without it actually being present there, or you can't reveal it. And God is essentially saying, I will reveal myself to you. And that means I will be present with you in that, that special way. And here is how we can adore God and experience him, encounter him in a new way. Uh, to understand this whole, whole notion of um, presence, there was um, um, an elderly gentleman a few years ago, eating in a, in a restaurant, a takeaway restaurant in California, in and out Burger. I always thought when we lived in the US that that was a comment on the quality of the food. But apparently, no, it just means it's fast food. You can, you can get in and you can get out quickly. But anyway, he was, he was sitting there at in and out Burger and, and um, all of a sudden, people just noticed him. He was sitting there by himself and he had this little photo on the table with him. And... Um, Somebody noticed this and, and took a photo of it and then posted it on, on Twitter and, and apparently it just went viral. But people noticed this elderly man with his, with his frame there sitting, sitting at the table and, um, and they just asked him, you know, a little bit about his story. People got more and more curious and... And then it sort of came out as, you know, people congregated and asked his, his story. It came out that, well, actually, the photo was of him and his, his wife. They met when they were 17 years of age, but then got separated because of World War II. For 10 years, they were separated, didn't, didn't know what had happened to, to one another. And one day, he's, he's getting a haircut, and he tells his barber about this. And his barber hears the story and then suddenly disappears out the back of the barbershop and brings from the back of the barbershop his daughter out, and it's her. And so they immediately got married, and they, they were married for 55 years. But five years ago, she, she passed away, and he never goes anywhere without, without that photo. 
So there he was sitting in the restaurant with a photo. It's, it's a lovely story, but it's also a little bit sad, isn't it? Because there, now he only has the memory of love, not the experience of it. You can't have intimacy without proximity. God knows that. He knows for us to love him and for, for us to have an experience of his love, he needs to reveal his presence to us. To have intimacy, we must also have proximity. And so God's promise to us is this. If we will love him with all the obedience that we can muster, he will make himself at home in our hearts. Love him with all the obedience that you can. And he will make himself at home in your heart. Obedience to God leads to an experience of the presence of God present with us. God present with us. The people of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they knew this. They knew that for it to go well for them, they must be obedient to God, and they must be obedient in this matter. But if they were obedient in this matter, God would be with them. He would show up. Obedience always results in God showing up. That was the way that this would, that this would work. But what are the implications when we are not obedient? Let's just reverse that for a moment and think about its application. What are, what are the implications for a nation that no longer follows the ways of God? Remember, if we are obedient to God, God will show up. If we're obedient to God, then God's presence will be with us. Not just, not just present. God's always present. But God's presence will be with us. What happens to the nation that no longer follows God's teaching that is disobedient to God. I don't think it's unfair to say that God will not be present with them. What about the church that is obedient to God? As a church, when, when we obey God and we're, we're seriously, genuinely, week after week after week, doing whatever we can, individually and together, to to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ to our life, all of his teachings. We genuinely try to be obedient to God. Is, is that what is meant by where two or three are gathered in my name? Because we can't be gathered in his name if we're not being obedient to him, right? Is that what is meant by where two or three are gathered in my name? So we're aligned with and obedient to God. We're keeping his commands. I will be there, especially present amongst them. They'll have a special sense of my presence. Is is that actually, if there is any human mechanism to triggering a revival apart from prayer, which is a given, could that be it? Could, could that be the secret to revival? Absolute radical obedience to everything that God says and a zero tolerance for anything but that. Could that be it? When church doesn't work, 
And we know that sometimes it doesn't. There are, there are churches, sadly, all around us that are in pain and experiencing difficulties. We ourselves as a church, as a church have had our difficult times. But could that be at the heart of it? That somewhere along the way, we as God's people, sometimes as with all the best of intentions, but somewhere along the way, we, we fall out of alignment with, with what God requires. We no longer keep his teaching in, in this matter or that matter. We're disobedient. And is that, is that why churches sometimes lose that sense of God being present with them? And go through times of sickness and challenge and difficulty? Could, could that be right? And what about us as individuals? To lay hold of God's promises, our affections will always be tested. Where is our heart? Do we desire God more than the thing that God has promised? And how do we test our affections? Will we be radically obedient to everything that Jesus commands? Brennan Manning talks about Christians only going the first half of what Jesus requires and doing well in the first half of their life. But the second half, ah, finding some sort of more comfortable compromise between Jesus and the world. What if we, in our individual lives, made a covenant with God to, to go the whole way, not just the first half, but the second half as well? When our affections are tested, what if, what if they became opportunities to say, oh God, whatever it is, wherever you want to put your finger on whatever part of my life it is, please test it. Please touch that nerve. Please, go on. I know I'm not going to like it, but do it. Please do it for your sake, for your kingdom's sake. Because I say I love you. Test my affections. And find if there is any, anything wayward in me. What if we were to do that individually, every single one of us? I wonder what a difference that would make. Wow. I mean, it's challenging, I know. I, I don't say this easily. I've worked the pattern out. Whatever I challenge you with, God seems to challenge me with. I don't get away with it. So it's all right, I'm careful. <laughs> so seriously, I don't say it flippantly as if, there's a good one for you. <laughs> Wait till next week. No, I know this is going to come back at me too. But what if? What if a personal revival was the, was the trigger for a, for a church revival, which was the trigger for a, a nationwide revival? Because we just simply said, no compromise. Whatever you want, God, you can have it.
when we obey God, He shows up. How much obedience does it take? Is a revelation from God dependent upon our obedience? Well, what about loved ones? What about people we desire to come back in to those streams of living water which, which represent communion and relationship and fellowship with God, but they're distant and they're strayed and we're concerned for them. What about that? How much obedience does it take to trigger a revelation from God? Peter denies Jesus for the third time. The the rooster crows. Jesus looks straight at him. What? did the face of Jesus look like in that moment? Hard to say, but I can tell you this. Peter remembered all of what Jesus predicted, and then he wept bitterly. And this is one of those cases where a little bit of a a word study in the Greek actually actually helps us to get a sense of this. To weep bitterly, the Greek has the same sense of mourning, a great loss, of wailing. It's a loud cry, a wail of wailing in grief. Peter's heart was broken. He was grieving a great loss. This was bitter weeping. I don't think it's a stretch to say this was Peter in repentance. That look of Jesus triggered a change of mind in Peter. What have I done? What have I done? And grieving like he had just lost everything, he cries bitterly. Repentance is the the first step of obedience. Oh, to see the face of Jesus. The look that turns everything around. Maybe there is an area of sin or disobedience in your life and you're, you're even wondering, well, how do I tackle it? I feel so distant from God. How do I even start to tackle that? Why not try this? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in in his wonderful, beautiful, majestic face. Consider his countenance. And the things, the stuff of this world, I promise you, will grow incredibly dim in the light of his glory and his grace. 
It'd be a fantastic way to, to search the Gospels, to read the Gospels. Reading them and looking for the face of Jesus as you read. What is his heart? Not reading it like Pharisees, reading it as the, the letter of the law. but reading through all of the teachings of Jesus and searching his heart. What is it? What does radical obedience look like in this matter, Jesus? What do you require of me? To search his face and, and know the peace and the joy that comes with the knowledge that he and his father are at home in your heart. It's a beautiful thing. That is the abundant life. The life that is truly life. The one that Satan cannot mimic or replicate in any way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for leading us this morning in really a, a meditation, a contemplation on what does it mean to love you, to adore you. We might declare our affection for you. but you require devotion and obedience. And to the one that obeys your every command, you promise revelation and an experience of your presence. Thank you for helping us to understand there can be no compromise. not if we are to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. I pray that you would, yes, radical prayer, test our affections and find that there is nothing false in us as you align us in every way with your heart. Thank you for one another. Thank you for the gift of fellowship. Thank you for everyone here this morning. And may we be a blessing and encouragement to each other as we go from this place. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Bless you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.